0: Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Fergus Bordewick. Mr. Bordewick has been an independent historian and writer since the early 1970s. He has worked in numerous journalism positions across the world, including in Beijing and Tehran and his articles have appeared in several prominent magazines and newspapers. Today, he discusses his book, The First Congress, how James Madison, George Washington, and a group of extraordinary men invented the government. You'll hear about the contributions these men made to the American government, as well as the controversies surrounding the First Congress. And now, Mr. Bordwick and Dr. Bradburn.
1: Well, welcome back to the Washington Library. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at lovely Mount Vernon, uh, and I'm delighted to have with me today Fergus Bordowick, who is an historian of note and has written over seven books now on a variety of topics, but he's also a man about town, global traveler, and genuinely interesting characters, so we're going we're gonna to try to get to the bottom of him today. Welcome to Mount Vernon, Fergus. Thanks, Doug. I'm happy to be here. So Fergus has a brand new book out called The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government. But before he was exploring that early story in New York and Philadelphia back in the days, uh, he was uh, a journalist, and he was a journalist all over the world. He was a writer and editor for the Tehran Journal in Iran. Tell us about that a little bit.
2: Well, that was quite a few years ago, and and uh, it was before the revolution when there were English and other foreign language newspapers in Tehran. Uh, I was doing freelance uh, writing in Asia. I was in Tehran. Uh, they offered me a job, and I said, uh, boy, you know, sounds like fun. Uh, mm. And that was way back, 1972, 1973, mm. And uh, I covered news in Tehran. Amazing. In English, uh, Mm. primarily. It was a challenging place to work even then. Mm. And frankly, pretty repressive under the Shah. But nonetheless, very, very different from Iran today.
1: And then you went on to have a a journalistic career in many different areas uh, and transitioned to history at some point. Uh,
2: Yeah. uh, I uh, wrote independently for... A great many magazines back in the uh, 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even when I was doing journalism, I wrote, many of the stories I wrote were from an historical perspective. Mm-hmm. And all my life I've thought in terms of history, and I suppose I've thought like an historian.
1: Right, well, let's a, let's yeah. pause right there a little bit. So what do you, what do you mean by that? What is a uh, what is it that distinguishes the way a historian thinks about an event or a moment uh, than, say, just a typical journalist or a, a non-journalist, a uh, non-historian?
2: Well, I don't think you can understand the present at all without understanding the past. Absolutely everything and everyone has a past that informs who we are or what our society is, how it operates today. So any kind of story has has an ancestry, so to speak, mm. and I think you're not really understanding it unless you have an historical perspective.
1: So you found yourself approaching all these topics with sort of trying to figure, well, how did we get how did we get here?
2: Yeah, precisely, precisely. Why and, is
1: this newsworthy after all? Uh,
2: precisely, and and frankly, I often found the the history of a subject more interesting than than the than the the tip-of-the-iceberg present-day story, frankly. It was a very easy transition into doing book-length history. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. indeed, uh, as a journalist, I was often kind of frustrated that I I didn't have the great expanse of of space that you have in a book to really... Mm -hmm unravel all the threads, not to yeah. slice the Gordian knot with a sword, but to untangle it slowly and patiently the way an historian can.
1: Yeah, wonderfully put. So not only you probably didn't have the time to, you know, to get into things, you had deadlines and all that, but then also the space constraints to tell the story, that even if you had the time to discover it, you couldn't fit it.
2: Sure. Uh, even even a 3,000 or 4,500 word magazine piece uh, is cramped if you're, if you're thinking in in, in historical terms.
1: So, uh, you always had that bent. Did you ever, you know, when you, when you were in college, were you ever saying, I'm going to be a historian? Or were you always thinking, at that time, more journalism, more, you know, more adventure? I mean, what, was the, what, was the, what was the youthful ambition? Uh, well, uh, frankly,
2: when I was uh, in college, I went to the City College of New York and then mm-hmm. later Columbia University, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to see the world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get out there and... And,
1: uh, and you're from Manhattan. You're from Manhattan.
2: I was born in Manhattan, but I grew up in uh, Yonkers, a mm-hmm. Rust Belt town just, just north of Manhattan.
1: I always was struck uh, when I lived in SUNY Binghamton and I had to do my taxes. I always had to say whether or not I lived in Yonkers or not. What is it with Yonkers and the tax code that they have some special some special uh, thing there? Oh, I don't know. Okay, so uh, she grew up there, and uh, and then what? Uh, Well...
2: You wanted to see the world. I wanted to see the world, and uh, I uh, worked at all sorts of things. Mm. For a while, I was, uh, worked on a Norwegian freighter briefly. I worked in the oil fields in Alaska mm. for a bit. This is way back in the 1960s. Uh, mm. um, I drove a taxi cab in New York City for a couple of years to put myself uh, through college, actually. Mm. I did it. Mm. Uh, from time to time, when afterward. You,
1: when you ride in a, a taxi now in New York, do you tell them the the right way to go, or uh, you, you sit back and relax?
2: I avoid taxis. <laughs> I avoid taxis precisely so yeah. because I do tend to drive from the back seat, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it brings back many many, many memories that I just as in now.
1: So I think uh, some academic historians, and I might be one of those that have this uh, this sad envy of journalists who are a better writers. It seems to be. Uh, they seem to write things that people want to read, but also um, they seem to be able to get things done uh, in, in a much more rapid uh, way than us academics who have to you have to ponder the problem. Uh, is that your sense of it? Do you have a blinkered view towards the uh, the academics, or do you? You don't I don't see us as rivals at all. Oh, abs-
2: absolutely not. Uh many of my friends uh <laughs> many of
1: best friends are my friends
2: I Yeah, quite I like quite, so. <laughs> quite so. Quite uh, so. My my da- my my daughter who's 26 is uh uh working on a PhD as we speak mm-hmm. and uh and and is herself negotiating the the that that fine line between let's say f- fresh uh fresh and individualistic writing and highly academic straitjacketed jacketed writing so yes right.
1: i mean they, 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 you do have to say certain certain things after to show you know what you're saying and why it matters um, but yeah, but uh, but it does it does tend to tend to create writing that is a little abstruse
2: yeah uh i mean I've always certainly and this does come from uh, a journalism background mm-hmm. uh. I'm writing for an audience. Yeah. I, I want people to read what I'm writing. And I want them to be moved by it. I want them to care about it. Mm. And mm. I, I don't want to thwart their appreciation of, of yeah. the subject that I'm writing about yeah. with, with stiff, stilted, or, or, or uh, um, academically ponderous writing. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now, uh, another uh, great historian writer is... Um, uh, and I and I consider you a really great writer, but um, uh, is Nat Philbrick? Uh, and when I asked him, sort of like, well, how, you know, how do you hone? How did you hone your writing skills? And for him, it was always fiction. I mean, it was it was fiction writers that he thought of, and that you know he wants to get in a groove. He'll read and emulates in a certain way. What are the writers or writing that you? That you are emulating, that you like uh, nonfiction, fiction. What what are what are some of the things out there?
2: Well, I I, I like his answer, and I I, I somewhat share that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that view generally speaking. But mm. I think the writer who I would cite as the one who, way way back when I was y- quite young, yeah. uh, in my early teens, who who um, showed me that nonfiction writing can be mm-hmm. dramatic, exciting, have the qualities of fiction while not being artificial or false. Right. It was Bruce Catton.
1: Okay. Sure. Uh, the, yeah, the, the yeah.
2: Great Civil War historian mm-hmm. who himself had originally been a journalist.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and when I was probably
1: Yeah, that tw- multi-volume history of the Civil War is still widely read and purchased and uh, beloved, I think.
2: His History of the Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. wonderful three-volume series yeah. published in the fifties uh has the arc of a Greek tragedy hmm. and the story of the Army of the Potomac was tragic for reasons we don't need to go into yeah. here uh but those well, books, it
1: was hubris obviously <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was well, a Greek tragedy right?
2: It was well funny. I mean passionately motivated yeah. self-sacrificing soldiers yeah. led by dreadful generals mm. losing battle after battle and so on mm. yeah. uh, but uh Bruce Catton. Uh, showed me, to life, yeah. brought it to life, and and could evoke the the tragic dimension in in mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. Uh, without fictionalizing it.
1: I also would think that um, you know, like that. What about the new? Did, were you ever interested in like the new journalism, like you know, the Tom Wolfs and all that sort of stuff, or where you're, you're writing these literary pieces of events that are, you know, that are in magazines that people want to read that are like fiction but not fiction.
2: Uh, well, so long as what the, the, the writer is writing is truthful, yeah. I, I don't yeah. care that much about the form. And I, I, I do think a lot of very, very interesting writing came out of that school. And it, uh, uh, writers of Tom Wolfe's ilk brought to life potentially fairly dry hmm. subjects. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, I, I'm, I'm a kind of big tent writer. I think there's yeah. room for all kinds of people.
1: Well, I, want you to, I don't want you to hate on anybody. I'm just <laughs> pushing you along here. All right, so uh, let's get into the book itself. Um, now, you've written a book on the early history of Washington. You've written about Henry Clay. Uh, which of those is the one that made you say, you know, the Congress is really an interesting space that I want to explore more? What, what do you think? Is it the Clay book that you said, oh, Congress, yeah. Uh, yeah, although... Uh, uh,
2: Several books back. I wrote a um, mm. book uh, called Bound for Canon, mm. which was the first uh, real history of the Underground Railroad in uh, more than a century. In a long time. More than a century, mm. believe it or not. And in the course There's of a writing... a lot of
1: hoary myths about the Underground Railroad.
2: It, 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 it's mythologized maybe more than any other comparable subject in American history. And, mm. and what I did in that book was to cut through that and discard the mythology mm-hmm. and discover that there was an abundance of, of docu- documentable information mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. documentable history rather yeah. of the Underground Railroad and mm-hmm. within that book I was writing about the uh, um, the fugitive slave law of 1850 how that came into being mm-hmm. and here was, uh, I found myself writing about Daniel Webster who mm-hmm. was a titan of the early uh, 19th century American politics, uh, an 1850s secretary of state. He defends the fugitive slave law. Here's a man who had mm-hmm. built his career, it would seem, on, a, on opposition to slavery and yet here he is defending the fugitive slave law yep. in the most scathing terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I asked myself, well, how did he get there? How did... Daniel Webster get there mm-hmm. that led yeah. that question led eventually to writing my book about the yeah. compromise of 1850 yeah. and the yeah. debate that led up to yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Webster's defending and, the union that was created in the compromise and the Constitution yeah. Yeah.
2: and in in working on that book, uh, uh, I found it really quite exciting writing about Congress and, and mm-hmm. uh, exciting and Congress are two words that most people Wouldn't put together. Maybe you've never heard them put together before, but in in fact, Congress is largely neglected uh, as as a subject. Writers on uh, American history crowd around Mm. presidents. Yes, innumerable books about Lincoln, Washington, and others. But um, uh, the. Debate that led up to the Compromise of 1850 was extremely dramatic. The level of oratory was unmatched in our history. Uh, The personalities were were extraordinary. And as a writer, I like writing ensemble pieces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Rather
1: than uh, biography.
2: Rather than biography. which uh,
1: Which is really great. I mean, that's a different talent to have to deal with because it also requires you... To frame a subject around a historical problem rather than somebody's life per se. Yeah, I always say uh, with my biographer friends, you know, you've got it easy because you know you know how the story ends and uh, and you know when to end the book. It's sort of like, well, they die and then it's over, you know. Uh, Whereas in a case like this, uh, the first Congress, you you actually have to construct a historical question and problem that you're going to answer, and and then you you have to end it. So,
2: yeah, well, the first Congress. Uh, has an arc. Mm
1: -hmm. It has a beginning,
2: a middle, and an end. A great deal happens in between. Uh, (laughs)
1: Well, we hope. (laughs) It's the
2: truth. Uh Uh, Nobody knew when the first Congress, the members first began to arrive in New York City, then the Capitol, in in the spring of uh, 1789, uh, nobody knew whether this Congress was going to succeed. It was by no means a foregone conclusion yeah. that, that it would work out. And uh, bear in mind, the first Congress is Plan B. Plan A was the Confederation. Yeah, that's and it, right. And it and didn't work out so It well. didn't work yeah. out at yeah. all. And Plan B was the Federal Congress. Yeah. The Constitution has been uh, uh, ratified just months before. Mm. Two states haven't even ratified it mm. when Congress meets uh, James Madison among others is, who's one of the first to arrive is in a near panic yeah. a near panic that not enough members will even bother to show up
1: yeah it's sort of like you send invitations to a party and nobody shows it's that moment before the clock ticks and you're like what happened here and, and you really, you really uh, describe the, the crisis of the moment in a crucial way I think uh, there's so much hindsight gives us so much sense of inevitability and if you, if, you, if you don't paint the picture correctly, the stakes of the drama are not going to work and you you do it so well it, it, on on many levels. I mean you talk about and maybe you could talk a little bit about this you know the the sense of, of the United States is, is not having a common national character or culture. I mean, these are really 13 different regions, different colonies. Uh, talk a little about that and how, how much people at the time were afraid of that.
2: Yeah, in, indeed. Um, uh, many many Americans of the time, including many members of Congress, will refer not to my state, but to Virginia or Massachusetts or New York as my country.
1: Yeah.
2: as my country, it's a significant uh, uh, yeah. difference, linguistic difference. Uh, many people maybe even the majority in 1789 are not thinking of the united states as a nation as we think of it at all today mm-hmm. but rather as a as a jumble of countries that, like like the balkans yeah. let's say to yeah. to strain the point a little bit the european union or the
1: european okay. union is a it a better... country is it a nation what is it i mean
2: it's... yeah but that that's not that's not a bad analogy actually for the way mm-hmm. people were thinking in 1789 uh, Southerners were deeply suspicious of Northerners, Northerners of Southerners, mm-hmm. uh, Westerners of Easterners, mm-hmm. uh, New Englanders of just about everybody. Yeah. Uh, the so hun- it's, if, it's always yeah.
1: hard when you're the chosen people, like a New Englander. You know,
2: uh, <laughs> uh, although I will say, I think there was there there were several several regional groups that thought of themselves <laughs> as, as the chosen people. They
1: are Ameri- that's one thing Americans have in common, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, that, no, that, she set that up very nicely. And the other thing, which I think that, uh, you know, certainly students, but uh, the general public as well, and you think about this, as this Congress itself is, you know, I, I mean, it's just described on a piece of paper. There's nothing. There's, uh, there's no government. And let me just read some of this on page five here. There's no executive departments, no federal employees, no Supreme Court, lower courts, the nature of the relationship between the federal and the states is still wide open. Uh, congressional districts varied. Uh, you don't have any congressional uh, committees. You don't have any parties. I mean, you don't have rules of procedure. You don't know exactly what the executive branch and the and the legislative branch is gonna to work together. So that so everything is basically a tabula rasa in this moment.
2: Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think we Americans Tend to imagine that the Constitution created the government. The Constitution, brilliant as it is, though uh, not unflawed, uh, uh, was a piece of paper. It was a piece of paper. It was a plan for government that didn't exist. Uh, The national government didn't didn't leap full blown like like, uh, from the Constitution, like uh, Athena from Zeus's forehead. uh, the first Congress was charged with the duty of making the government, mm. of, of, of turning ideas into institutions, and it became very clear very quickly that there were a lot of – the Constitution left a lot of holes. Yeah. Uh, as as the, that uh, reading suggests. Yeah. It was their job to figure out. Yeah. How to fill those holes.
1: So how did it work? So there's three sessions, obviously, in the first Congress. The first two are in New York. The next is in Philadelphia. Uh, is this a tale of three sessions, this book? Or is it, is it mingled together? I mean, uh, uh, how, how, does it, uh, how does it happen? This day is day
2: a straight day? narrative. Yeah. The way I, I chose to write this was as follows. I, I tried to imagine myself uh, sort of in the visitor's gallery. Mm. In the House of Representatives, the Senate was closed, by the way. Yeah. No visitors, no records. Uh, uh, there's only one diary mm-hmm. that that records in detail what actually happened in the Senate. But at any rate, let's imagine ourselves in the Visitor's Gallery, House of Representatives, James Madison down on the floor, uh, and so on. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And I, Some real vibrant characters come through here, James Jackson of Georgia and... <laughs> And some others, yeah.
2: James uh, Jackson was a famous shouter from uh, south, from from Georgia. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the Senate uh, on the floor above frequently had to close its windows, and, and, and somebody said, "Oh, it's Jackson again downstairs!" You know, oh, close the windows. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I tried to write this in in something close to real time, mm. letting the Congress unfold. Yeah. That's the story, yeah. really. They didn't know what the outcome was going to be, and as best I could imagine myself into their shoes as someone who didn't know what the outcome yeah. was going to be, that's how I chose to write it. So you, as a reader, you thought, I, I would hope you're, you're, you're kind of uptight at the beginning. Yeah. May, yeah. They may not be able to pull it off. And there were several... Crises Mm -hmm. in the course of the three sessions. Uh, Each session folds out of the one before. There's a natural progression there. The first
1: one's dominated by James Madison. Very much so. I mean, James Madison, you know, knows the Constitution as as well as anybody, and he takes on this role in in the first house as, as a. A, kind of like a majority leader or something, obviously that doesn't exist. So how do you characterize James Madison in that period?
2: Yeah, well, you're precisely right. Uh, Madison steps into the vacuum, uh, and there is a vacuum. As you, as you just pointed out, there's no majority leader, no minority leader. Yep. There are no whips. There's no seniority system. Hmm. Zilch. No committees? <laughs> uh, uh, well,
1: well, or, or is that? committees are created. Create
2: those, they right. they create committees. So. Many, many, many committees. Mostly ad hoc, which is why there were so many, many. <laughs> uh, and Madison, Madison knew what he wanted. Mm. And yeah, he'd played an outsized role at the Constitutional Convention. He's uh, believed by just about everybody to be the best interpreter of the Constitution mm. until by the second session, not so much. Mm-hmm. And there are
1: divergences occur. Well, that's what's so astonishing, how quickly there's disagreements about the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, Right
2: away. Well, the Constitution was a patchwork of compromises to begin with. Uh, Not one person, not one in the first Congress, including many who were at the Constitutional Convention, refers to the Constitution as a sacred document. Mm -hmm. Nobody believes that this is something divinely inspired. In other words, at the origin, there were no originalists.
1: (laughs) That's right.
0: Uh,
2: uh, And uh, bear in mind, too, the Constitution's just been ratified. It's brand new. Everybody knows where the holes are and where the the seams are, the badly knit seams.
1: And... uh, They move so rapidly from a modern point of view. You you know, it's like... They know they're setting precedents, yeah. but at the same time, yeah. they're moving pretty yeah. quickly. I mean, what, what is happening?
2: They're, they're terrified of failure. Yeah. They are terrified of failure, as I said uh, a while ago. This the alternative
1: is, is chaos. Th- th- th-
2: this is plan B. There's no plan C. Yeah. There is no other idea yeah. for some other kind of government than what they've got here. And what yeah. you have, a tension that you have throughout the first Congress is between federalists, that's to say those who are or at least come into the first Congress as strong supporters of the Constitution, of a national government, anti-federalists on the other side, who essentially hated the Constitution. Mm -hmm. They thought it was terrible. Uh, They they will evolve into what we would probably call states' rightists Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. Uh, And you do find in that first Congress uh, states' rights versus national arguments over and over and over again and it, it, when even in this election year of 2016 when states rights arguments have become are found in the air again uh they go back to the origin there's never been yeah. a time in our history when this tension yeah. between the national and and the and, and the state well be,
1: because there's yeah. always a fair question as to you know what what really is uh the best authority to kind of decide for particular communities and states are yeah. real Things and yeah. have particular interests in communities, and so they're represented in the Senate. Obviously, they're a part of the system. Uh, so it'd be surprising if it ever went away. But uh, but I think you're right in capturing in this moment. You're really looking at at a group, some group, and a smaller minority certainly in that first Congress than it would be of people who might want to try to amend the Constitution out of existence, essentially, or out of any kind of central power at all. Yeah,
2: quite so. Uh, anti-federalists uh, had. Uh, demanded through various state conventions uh, more than 200, mm-hmm. 200 amendments to the Constitution. Yeah. So how does Madison navigate that? Well, okay, Madison... And satisfied. Yeah, let's go back to Madison. Yeah. Uh, one one of his, his uh, salient achievements in the first Congress was shaping the first amendments, which we today call the Bill of Rights. Yeah. They almost never called it the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a much later 19th century.
2: Pretty much 20th century. Oh,
1: really, yeah. Yeah, pretty much Mm.
2: 20th century. Um, uh, So Madison uh, took on the responsibility, doubtless sought the responsibility, of winnowing these 200 amendments down to a smaller and manageable number. Mm. Now, Madison originally had been an adamant opponent of, of amendments of any kind, mm-hmm. absolutely not, James said. Mm-hmm. Um, then running for Congress in a strongly anti-Federalist district in Virginia mm-hmm. against James Monroe, by the way, mm-hmm. a an anti-Federalist.
1: Yes, right. He famously the only two people who ran against each other for Congress who later. Uh, became
2: president, I think. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, Extraordinary. Uh, so Madison, during that campaign to his anti-Federalist constituency, Madison said, "Well, actually, I've actually I've been for amendments all along. Hmm. Now, in Congress, winnowing them down, he says, well, not so much.' Hmm. Uh, hmm. And he strips out any any kind of amendment or any kind of language, let's say, that he felt might undermine." a strong uh, national government. Mm. So mm. in today's terms, he'd be condemned by pundits and ideologues as a f- consummate flip-flopper because mm. he was mm. right. against them before he was for them, before right. he was against them again. Yeah. But he did a great job yeah. producing amendments that he regarded, his word, as harmless. Mm.
1: That's right, uh, and that's, that's really well told. Uh, so let's get to, we are at Mount Vernon. We want to get to George Washington and his great significance. One of the things I, I I really struck me in your formulation that I haven't seen is this notion that George Washington, of course, is going to carve out what the presidency is, and we'll talk about that. But uh, but uh, John Adams isn't going to carve out really a role for the vice presidency, it, and, and it, somewhat implying that there was room there for the vice presidency to act to be a, a different kind of institution than it has uh, than it had than it had become, uh, talk a little bit about that how you see John Adams kind of uh, failing to sort of carve out a space uh, a meaningful space for the vice president
2: yeah, I think uh, adams 's failure to do that is one of the minor tragedies of of the first congress mm. adams 's best years were during the revolution yeah. the revolutionary war he 'd been out of the country. Serving as a not particularly successful ambassador in europe yeah. uh, he certainly came came home with a more european more british and his enemies said, and I concur more monarchical view mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. government mm-hmm. Uh, than he 'd had when he yeah, went the, to Europe the
1: ritual and hierarchy yeah, yeah. In, in power
2: yes and he 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 uh was obsessive in trying to lard the presidency with with uh
1: Monarchical sounding titles. Yeah. Uh, he was, well, and, well, and he was obsessed with with categorizing different governments as well. He'd written the big treatise on governments and 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 the comparison of the state constitutions and all that. And he he would use terms like monarchical to describe the U.S. system, even though people, you know that's maybe that's great in political science terms, John, but that's really in politics. You know? Yeah,
2: he was a, he was a totally left footed politician. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wrong-footed politician, I should say. Yeah.
1: Um, he also because well, I'm left-handed and I take that <laughs> I take that very anyway, um, hard. <laughs> he uh,
2: uh, he he was also I can't say blessed mm. with with Nixonian charisma, mm. <laughs> uh, which is to say he had a, a relentless knack for annoying people, mm-hmm. uh, particularly those in the Senate over which yeah. he presided. He intended. The vice presidency to be active, involved, engaged. He behaved like a member of the Senate. Right. Now, a different personality might have been able to carry that off. Yeah. A more conciliatory, cooperative, patient, less emotional.
1: Yeah. So the, the president, I mean, the Constitution gives yeah. the vice the president, the vice president is the president of the Senate, uh, ha, has a vote in, in ties. So there is a role to be played there,
2: yeah. Yeah, and his personality was was absolutely the worst mm. for the job, mm. and, uh, th- both that the office uh, called for and that he said for himself. Mm. So he, he alienated people. He diminished, thereby diminished the vice presidency mm. because everything that happened in this Congress uh, and indeed in the executive with Washington became a precedent. Everybody knew everything was precedent setting. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's I, well, that's why yeah, I brought it up because yeah. I found that I don't, I, I don't think I'd read it. Anyone with that, and I think it's a tremendous insight in thinking about the vice presidency and people. People, I mean, most people just describe it to the Constitution itself. That like the vice presidency is this weird office, and there's no place for it. But the Constitution has got all kinds of weird things that there's no place for, but that now exist and are powerful things and. Uh, and that brings us to the presidency itself, which, is, which obviously is written out more than the vice presidency. But what role does Washington and George Washington play? What's the drama of the story of how he creates that office?
2: Yeah, Washington, uh, of course, was more or less inventing the presidency mm-hmm. as he went along, just as Congress was inventing the rest of government as right. it went along. Yeah. It's, it's it's a story of invention, if you like, yeah. a, of a great creative ferment in politics. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. Washington. The more I write about Washington, the more the more fascinating I find the man. Mm. Uh, I've written about him uh, elsewhere, including a, a book I write about the creation of the U.S. Capitol in Washington D.C. Um, and I think Washington was more politically engaged, more politically acute, mm. more politically subtle than he's often g- given credit for. Yeah. Uh, it's a challenge always to, 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 to crack the marble statue or get him down from the white horse and, and, and get close to the man. Even his contemporaries couldn't get close to him uh, yeah. at, at, at this distance. It's 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 a great challenge. But well,
1: he didn't. He doesn't help us. He he no. holds us at arm's length as he did his contemporaries, and he's playing this role.
2: Yes, yeah, very very much so. He is, he is, he's he's very he's he very much sees himself as a as a large figure on a grand stage, which he is. I mean, it's not.
1: Uh, but I think. But I think what you nicely do is yeah. you give you give him uh, the political acumen. So many writers on that moment, you know he's sort of there, Uh, he's sort of the inevitable guy, he's gotta be there, he's a figurehead. But you have him more as an agent of change himself.
2: Yeah, I think there are are, are a couple of different ways of, um, that it's important to look at Washington during this period. Uh, One is that he is a Republican, small r Republican, to his bones, Mm -hmm. quite remarkable for a man of his background, patrician, Mm -hmm. slave owner, a uh, uh, planter uh, wealthy one of the wealthier men in the colonies at mm-hmm. the time, but he is a deep dyed republican, mm-hmm. which means that he defers over and over and over to Congress, mm-hmm. which is the elected popular body right. uh, and he believes that congress is the, is the leading the, the, the leading branch of government mm-hmm. and bear, we should bear in mind. That most Americans thought of Congress as the leading branch of government yeah. well up to the 20th century, yeah. with two exceptions, those exceptions being Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. who went cut against the grain. Mm-hmm. So, uh.
1: Well, yeah, because, and maybe this is anachronistic yeah. and wrong as well, but hey, a lot of people, historians and otherwise, you think about the late 19th century, those presidents just seem sort of like non entities. I mean, it's the. The, the Congress is the body that's running things, and and uh, and they're just sort of there, and, and that it seems like that it, it could have been like that in, in right from the start.
2: Yeah, it's, that's more consistent actually yeah. with the Congresses closer to the founding. Yeah, than than not. Yeah. Uh, so Washington defers to Congress. Mm. He doesn't. He doesn't arrive in New York in April of 1789 with a presidential agenda, mm. with with a plan for his first hundred days, right. so to speak, which is a, a a millstone that's been hung around the neck of every president since Franklin <laughs> Roosevelt. FDR, yeah. uh, uh, the, the, some irrational expectation that in the first hundred days the president's supposed to accomplish something
1: yeah.
2: or right. a lot. So. <laughs>
1: Uh, yes. just keeping the country together is an achievement uh, <laughs> finding out where the men's let's room is let's have in the, the next house. president in the first 100 days not provoke a civil war <laughs> so, you know,
2: let's not do that <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so Washington is a Republican who defers to Congress yeah. and that's a choice, that's a political choice yeah. uh, that's not because he mightn't have done it some other way he's doing that because he believes that's the way mm-hmm. the relation, what the relationship should be now that said, uh, he was politically very acute. He's a man with a great deal of political experience, mm-hmm. both here in Virginia, dealing with Congress during the war.
1: Yeah. Uh, th- well, I think that, you know, as commander in chief of the yeah. Army, which he's dealing with the individual yeah. states, the Congress, yeah. the committees of yeah. safety, yeah. God yeah. knows who else, yeah. the infighting and in politics yeah. among the officers. And he's sort of like the, the figurehead as well of the country. I mean, that's got to be the, the real uh, test ground for him as president.
2: Exactly. As, as it was for Eisenhower yeah. uh, during and after World yeah. War II. Eisenhower was a political man who was yeah. also a general. Right. And yeah. that's true of, of, of Washington. Yeah. OK, so what's the dynamic then yeah. between uh, Washington and Congress? Well, you can't discuss that without talking about James Madison again. Yeah, absolutely, James Madison, Madison is essentially a, a protege of Washington. Mm-hmm. They are about as close as Washington is to any political people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madison comes here to Mount Vernon to meet with him, and uh, mm-hmm. they put their heads together, and they do quite a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madison composed pretty much, along with Washington, Washington's inaugura- inaugural Address right, yeah. uh, right here, Matt the Vernon, one Washington.
1: He gave, thankfully, not the long one. <laughs> yeah, the
2: seventy-page one uh, <laughs> written by his no, d- devoted me. but but rather rather uh, verbose uh, aide, uh, Humphreys. Uh, 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 so during the first Congress, Madison is visiting Washington almost every day, as best I can tell. Sadly, there are no notes of these conversations. There is no record. What did they say to each other? We don't know. And we 'd all like to know that we don't, but uh Madison is uh riding up there washington's uh, rented mansion, by the way, is stood under what is now one of the piers of the Brooklyn Bridge mm, on mm. cherry street in new york mm. uh, uh, He's Madison clearly is reporting what 's going on in Congress, what else would he be talking about what 's going on, what he has in mind how how the debates are playing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, How much is Washington suggesting what he, the president, would like?
1: Yeah.
2: How much is he, is his thinking being shaped by Madison, for whom he has great respect? Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's a mistake to imagine that Madison is really always steering Washington, doing everything. It's not so. It's not so. Washington is perfectly capable of thinking for himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's a great listener. Mm -hmm. He's a great listener. And he he is a master of 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 tapping talented people as yeah. his aides and, and assistants. Well,
1: in that first session, he doesn't really have the cabinet yet. Obviously, they have to be approved yes. for, for one thing. But all yeah. you know, Jefferson's not even there until you what know, February of 1790 yeah. Yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I mean, so so that whole first session, he's got what does he got? I guess he gets he get I, I guess Knox comes in at some point, and Hamilton comes in at some point, but. For a long stretch, it's just he and Madison.
2: Jefferson plays almost no role. He yeah. is a minor figure in the first Congress.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, he plays an important role in only one issue, which has to do with the compromise that resulted in the nation's capital being yeah. put on the Potomac.
1: big issue. <laughs> it,
2: it's <laughs> yes, it's yeah. big. But he, yeah. he's essentially, he's yeah. not the crafter. he's I mean, not he's he's the not crafter of it. Yeah. He helps yeah. Bring,
1: bring others it, together. Happen, yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, Hamilton is not yet there. Uh, tre- Secretary of the Treasury, but he's in town.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: Washington knew him; he talked to him. Uh, there are no good records of what they talked about. But Hamilton's right down the street, mm-hmm. right down the street. Uh, Knox is a, is the only carryover in the cabinet. That's right. He'd been yeah. Secretary of War under the uh, Confederation government. He continues. Uh, he had I been, guess
1: Jay is there as well. Yeah. Jay
2: is there as well, and and. Uh, uh, they, they they communicate. This is the mm-hmm. the, the group of leading men mm-hmm. at, at that point. Um, so, yeah, um, Hamilton isn't in the cabinet yet, but he and Washington interact. Jay doesn't become a, a, a member of the cabinet. He'll become the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but he's right down the street. Also, mm-hmm. uh, Madison is the only one of the group who's who's actually in Congress at the time, but. I want to come back to a point uh, that we were talking about a, a little while ago, about Washington as a political man, and um, okay, and this this assumption on the part of many that Madison is essentially right. driving He's Washington. Yeah. Well, uh, except when when Madison begins diverging sharply from the Federalist. Uh, yeah. uh, agenda, vision, uh, particularly yeah. over, over uh, yeah, the federalist vision, that's better put, uh, over Hamilton's brilliant financial plan, uh, Washington diverges from Madison. Yeah. So Washington clearly uh, is understands
1: Well, that, and this yeah. is correct. I mean, you're yeah. absolutely right. Of course, and the historians will say, well, now Hamilton's driving things, you know? Rather than Washington is the one driving. It uh, goes from uh, Madison's driving, then Hamilton's driving, and Washington just sort of like pushing, being pushed along. But you're right. It's Washington's choice, ultimately, it's his, to, to do what, you know, the, the Hamilton version of yep. what to do versus, you
2: know, these other advisors. Because I think what Hamilton is writing reflects or, or or persuades washington it's closer to what washington wants believes yeah. in sees as a better american future yeah. now I, I don't think we should see either or any of these relationships yeah. as one man driving another right. i think that's a, I think that sells them all short yeah. frankly because yeah. these are all men working it out as they go along mm-hmm. in real time that's yeah. in real time trying to figure out what this country is supposed to be like, yeah. what's the government supposed to be like, how do we pay our bills, and and uh, what kind of future mm-hmm. will Hamilton's plan deliver to us or what kind of future will rejecting it, as yeah. Madison wanted, deliver to us.
1: So what are some of the unknown stories about that first Congress that you really uh, connected with and felt like they had to be told better, they had to be told uh, you know, that, that a reader will find? <laughs> I mean, we we, we those of us who you yeah. know know the era know the bank controversies and the the funding and assumption debates and the title controversy and and things even the bill of rights. But what are what are some of the other you know kind of fights that you were you know, that really struck you?
2: Okay, well there were there are a lot mm-hmm. there are a lot. But but I'm I, I'm going to I'm going to take the risk of taking us back to the bill of rights for a oh, moment. Good good no, that's Be, great. Because the debate over the bill of rights bearing in mind that no one then called it the bill of rights <laughs> yes. okay they just called it yeah. amendments or alterations yes. okay yeah. Yeah. and uh, uh, i mean we today with good reason think of the those first 10 amendments as one of the great pillars of our constitutional system with good reason yeah. because uh, many of those amendments are used and uh, are used almost constantly at the time Nobody thought this was a big deal, okay? Mm. Federalists, by and large, didn't want any amendments. They yeah. didn't want any tampering with the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, the, they, many felt that the Constitution was too fragile mm. to play yeah. around with. Yeah, yeah. And some argued that, that any amendments would have the effect, especially if they were woven into the text, as as Madison wanted, yeah. Uh, rather than tacked on. Yeah, so on originally the you're
1: going to like slide these yeah, yeah, new yeah, lines yeah. in, as you do with like bylaws, yeah. you know, when you're in a club yeah. or something.
2: Yeah, many many members of the first Congress thought that would, yeah. in effect, repeal the Constitution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It would repeal it, and there would have to be a new constitutional convention. Mm-hmm. And and nobody thought that was a good idea. That's to right. say, Federalists yeah. didn't. Uh, so what about? I mean, the story of the debate over the amendments is absolutely fascinating mm. because you're going to hear points of view that you never imagined, mm. particularly uh, uh, the dismissive tone of, of federalists yeah. by and large. Uh, and these are just platitudes. They uh, yeah. don't
1: mean anything? Uh, yeah,
2: puffery, yeah. puffery. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, one of one of one of my favorites is. Um, um, uh, Theodore Sedgwick, a, a, a what you would call... Massachusetts, yeah. ...context of his time, a very progressive member of of, of the House of Representatives, Western Massachusetts, uh, who adra- talks about the right of assembly. He says, why would we put something like that in there? This is mere minutia. Yeah. Who needs it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And another New Englander, Livermore, from uh, New Hampshire, yeah, uh, obje- well. yes, objects to... Uh, 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 a provision against cruel and unusual punishment. He, yeah. he, he says, "What shall we never hang anyone? Yeah. Shall we not cut ears off?"
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So they're cutting to the nub of these things in a way that we don't. Yeah, we don't uh, think they would.
2: And and anti-federalists are dismally unhappy mm. with with the amendments that are produced, mm. even though they were the original motivators. And one of them uh, condemns Madison. Many do, but one of them condemns him. In this way, he makes Machiavelli piddling by comparison. Um, And, you know, what about the, say, the Second Amendment? I had anticipated yeah. writing a great deal about the Second Amendment because it's something— You assume there'll be a big debate about it. You assume yeah. there'll be a big debate. Right. There's no debate about
1: it. Yeah, the things that yeah. have come to matter most to us have, uh, yeah. were, were either, you yeah. know, not even talked about or not important in the same—certainly not in the same yeah. way. Yeah.
2: But, but um, I mean, what—, what is interesting and important to understand about what we now call the second amendment it wasn 't originally the second but uh, <laughs> uh, it was actually it it was happened, actually
1: yeah it turned out
2: that way it turned out that way uh, is that it, it's it, in our time people talk about it as only in in, in a vacuum mm. what was going on at the same time and this i 'm circling back to your what do we what don 't we know yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Uh, There was a long, long, prolonged debate, very detailed about uh, Secretary of War Henry Knox's militia plan. Right, the militia bill,
0: yeah.
2: Which uh, which was not enacted in the first Congress, Mm. but the debate went on and on and on over over a national militia.
1: Mm. Uh,
2: What was that about? Is that interesting or not? Well, Mm. it's very interesting because... Americans wanted no standing army. Mm-hmm. A standing army meant redcoats camped in your house, yeah. eating your food, uh, messing with your daughter mm-hmm. or your wife, perhaps, mm-hmm. stomping around in their muddy boots yeah. in your foyer, and so on.
1: And and That's a tool of tyrants. Tool of history, tyrants. An army,
2: yeah. Tool of tyrants. Yeah. That's what a standing army was. Mm-hmm. They didn't want a standing army. So who's going to defend the country? The militia. Hence, Secretary of War produces a militia plan that's, in its way, as detailed yeah. as Hamilton's treasure, uh, financial plan yeah. for the creation of a national militia.
1: Yeah, so this is how it will work. This is how it will relate to federal authority. I'm this sure. is how it will yeah. relate to state authority, yeah. that sort of thing. It, how you call them up, how you pay them, all that stuff.
2: All of that. Yeah. Very detailed. Very detailed. So when, when the Second Amendment speaks of a, an organized militia— it is talking about Henry Knox's militia plan. Mm. It's not talking about six guys, six drunken guys down the block with submachine guns yeah. uh, who, who've decided to be a militia on their own. Right. It, 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 Strict of its context, uh, the, the amendment doesn't mean very much. Mm. In context, it means a national, basically an army that will based, be based on militias, and that's essentially... Uh, how Americans, most Americans, thought of national defense mm-hmm. up to the Civil War. In the Civil War, what were all these volunteer regiments? Mm-hmm. Why did why, why didn't we have a big national army? Because Americans, right up to the to, to the Civil War, didn't want one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, I mean, that it's a it's a great story. Uh, I think. Um, well, well, it's interesting yeah. that yeah.
1: Uh, that you focus on the militia bill in the context of the time, because I think that. Uh, you know, bills that aren't passed, you know, in a certain Congress. But, you know, if you're going to tell the story of that Congress, you've got to tell the failures as well as there are not failures per se, but the right. roads not taken yeah. as well as the ones that are, um, you know, what, what are some of the bills that you think were fundamental that are going to create major precedents uh, uh, that are passed in that first Congress?
2: Ah, uh, Well, another and and this, too, is something that tends to be skipped over because it's it's it's, uh, it's a challenging subject. The first great debate in in the in the first Congress, the very first, and including Madison's first speech in the first Congress, mm-hmm. had to do with the subject of creating a national revenue stream. Mm-hmm. Okay, this isn't a sexy subject the way the way the Bill of Rights is, for example, or. Uh, uh, Hamilton's financial. Well,
1: yeah, for them it was the most important thing <laughs> it was the most <laughs> important thing for the, government. the
2: the yeah. confederation government basically had no income yeah. other than what it could squeeze through, through, through humble begging mm. from the states mm. so creating an, an income for the federal
1: government was, was imperative how uh, would that work today if Washington could only get funded by the city of Washington, the capital could only get funded by asking the states to send them money <laughs> one hates to imagine one hates to imagine yeah, not well yeah. uh, 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 so they have to create a new system that can tax directly, but yet isn't uh, isn't offensive to
2: people yes and 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 recognizing the fact that Americans will not tolerate being taxed directly mm. will not because again. Uh, they th- th- that occurred under the British, they fought a revolution. They don't want that anymore. Very touchy. Very touchy. So essentially, they created uh, a system of of duties, mm-hmm. duties and tariffs, uh, on on imports, um, and the debate, and which I which I wrote about it some length, and it was a challenge to make it really interesting. Yeah, you to okay? make it
1: sing. Yeah, yeah,
2: but songs. I... I, I, I
1: speeches go on and on.
2: Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and superficially it's about taxing rum and codfish right. and cotton and so on, back and forth, and all the sectional interests that, that uh, exist in the states mm. at that point are, 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 are there with their dukes up, so to speak, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, hammering yeah, it out. These men know what matters to their mm. people, to their region, yeah. to their state. I mean, they, they mm. understand deeply uh, what will be affected. But the subtext
2: here, mm. I mean, the, the, the let's say the main text is, is of course, creating a revenue stream. Mm. They succeed. They do a very good job at this, of hashing it out. But the subtext has to do with slavery. Mm-hmm. The subtext has to do with slavery. Uh, it has to do with the importation, for example, of uh, molasses from the uh, British Caribbean islands, mm-hmm. uh, like Barbados and so yeah. on, yeah. uh, where the, probably the worst slavery in the Western world at the time mm-hmm. uh, is the basis of the economy. Most of the carriage, the 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 the, 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 the Cargo ships that are carrying out this trade are New England. They're coming from New England, mostly Massachusetts and and Rhode Island and Connecticut, and new, some New York. Uh, so you have a North that's engaged in a triangular trade that is rooted in slavery, mm. and uh, so underneath this debate uh, and interlaced in it is the question of the morality of trading mm. essentially in the produce of slaves. Uh, molasses comes to New England. New England uses the molasses to produce rum. Yeah. Rum, rum is 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 sent to Africa uh, and used as a, as a, a trade item to buy slaves. Slaves are carried to the to the British Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So it's this this debate over over revenues is is intricately interwoven with with mm-hmm. the place of slavery and e- so, the economics interesting. of the time. So
1: in a, with a moral context that people. Yeah. Are bringing up occasionally because I know in that early debate yeah. they do they, yeah. they talk about how I mean some people complain that the Congress all they could do was tax imported slaves by ten, ten uh, you know ten dollars or something like that right I mean that's part of that same moment
2: there was a threat to tax slaves uh, uh, which which brought out dare that, I say the Jacksons right yeah James
1: Jackson the uh, South Carolinian and
2: Georgians uh, and you you are hearing you are hearing in that debate. From Georgian, and South Carolinians and some other Southerners, exactly the same language you will hear throughout antebellum history, right up to the Civil War, including threats of secession.
1: Well, one of the things that yeah. I remember in my research on that debate, uh, um, it was so there it was, it was so shocking to people like I think like uh, Thomas Scott of Pennsylvania and some of these others, yeah. because because the Constitutional Convention had been secret, and the kind of general tendency of everybody would say, well, slavery is bad and it is going to go away or we don't know what to do with it but this was like a defense of slavery that nobody had heard in public expressed in these terms you know in a while and and they were i think shocked by the by that <clears throat> tendency is that your sense of the reason yeah. of that debate well
2: slavery is the third rail yeah <laughs> if rails didn't exist then but uh, <laughs> we know what we're talking <laughs> what about would here would
1: be yeah i don't know uh, some kind of sail probably yes. make the ship go over
2: yeah <laughs> and uh, It's worth noting, uh, as well, that the first Congress saw the first uh, lobbying campaign Mm. in the United States history, and it's over slavery. Mm. Uh, This is not a well-known story, but it's quite interesting. Uh, It was a lobbying campaign organized by Quakers from Philadelphia and from New York, primarily. And uh, they literally buttonholed or lapel-grabbed the uh, members in the lobby of Federal Hall in New York, mm. uh, knocked on their doors, L- luckily yeah. for everybody, everybody was living. About They the- had a
1: famous endorser, Benjamin Franklin, right? They did. They did. They did. Uh, you got to get your famous person out there when you're lobbying. You know?
2: Yes, although Franklin <laughs> is literally on his last legs. Yeah. He dies in the course of the yeah. first Congress. Yeah. Uh, but, yes... Um, Uh, I mean, Quakers, were. what were they lobbying for? They were lobbying for Congress to enact some kind of legislation, making it clear that slavery would be brought to an end. Mm -hmm. It was a disaster. I mean, today, of course, we sympathize with the Quakers. They are the first organized uh, group of Americans out there uh, struggling against slavery as an institution uh, uh, in a collective way, rather than just uh, individual manumission. Mm uh but it was a disaster uh, mm-hmm. uh, strategically and tactically mm-hmm. uh members of Congress were terrified yeah. of of driving the South out out of no, I th-
1: yeah even though sympathetic you know, with the idea so sort of like do we really have to talk about this right now we're uh, uh, we just getting started <clears throat> here yeah
2: precisely yeah so essentially it was it was um, uh, table, which Madison, uh, at Madison's instigation. Mm. And it set the the basic approach to dealing with anti-slavery lobbying throughout the uh, antebellum Mm. period. Of course, it came up again from time to time. Just get rid of it. Get it out of here. Under the table. Under the table. (laughs) Yeah, we can't afford to talk about this. And
1: because I think there is in that debate something like I don't know about. We well, table it. Let's throw it under the table. Yeah, I mean, it's yes, something yes, like that. Yes, Literally. Yes.
2: Yeah. Quite yeah, so. Quite so.
1: Bury this. Quite uh, so. Uh, well, an interesting uh, subject. So we're running out of time, and let me ask you a couple of uh, quick questions here. Um, given your work on the on the foundation of the the capital, Washington D.C., when did they decide it, it, to name it Washington? Was um, that in the first Congress, or yes, the second? First. Or? Yeah. So wh- where did that come from? You, you, in some ways, you might think, well, since Franklin died, they might have called it Franklin. You know, he would have been the only other one of great stature. But uh, wh- how could they have named it after the guy who was the president? I mean, there was never... I mean, here at Mount Vernon, yeah, we're glad to did, yes. But, you know, it, it kind of well, goes against the old grain of the revolution at that moment. It, it seems to, it doesn't it? even put him on money, you know? <laughs> uh,
2: it seems to, doesn't it? But... Yeah. You know, there was never any other proposed name mm-hmm. other than seat of government, right. Federal district, well,
1: the district of Columbia, I guess.
2: Uh, although that was a newer coinage. Oh, it is. Yeah, it was federal district. Was, was mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was the was uh, the the operative mm-hmm. term uh, at yeah, first for
1: the federal district? The
2: federal district, uh, but you know, in the same way that everybody knew Washington, George Washington was the only yeah. man really fit to be the first president uh, everybody kind of knew Washington was the right name for the city mm. bear in mind it was this the federal district then was mostly yeah. farmland and Washington was a
1: swampland, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh,
2: yeah water meadows yeah. <laughs> that's right uh, so so there was there was no fascinating, th- there was yeah. virtually no no debate about so, that.
1: so what should uh, the modern American people who live today in a chaotic uh, landscape, uh, an interesting political climate uh, you know, what, what should they take away from this story of the first congress
2: well on on, on one hand, from a purely historical point of view, uh, I would like people to to, to realize how creative mm. and dynamic this Congress was. Mm. It's most often treated, yeah. if at all, as a kind of asterisk. A footnote. A yeah. footnote. I mean, after the Bill the,
1: of Rights, right? Yeah. That's the footnote. Yeah, and if people can it's just the first session.
2: Yeah, yeah so. just the first session. Yeah. So this, this first Congress really mattered. It was incredibly successful. Nothing was inevitable. Nothing was inevitable. Second, mm. it, is there some way in which it speaks to us in our, our own times? And uh, do I think the members of the first Congress were Olympians, were they demigods, were they somehow a different kind of person than Mm. we have in Congress today? The answer is no. They were pretty much the same kind of people, Mm. that's to say. The vast majority were experienced politicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody uh, threw down his plow, jumped on his mule, and galloped Mm -hmm. to New York and legislated and went went back to farming. These were professional politicians of the type that many people today condemn without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Second, the great majority were lawyers. they did a great job. They were experienced men. They knew how government worked. They understood the machinery of yeah. government. They took a long view. And they understood how difficult it is mm. to enact anything. Uh, uh, and uh, th- what's a difference with Congress today? I mean, it's got an 8% approval rating or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, I think over the last generation or the last 40 years or so, it's become commonplace on the part of, a great many Americans to to attack politics per se. Mm. The revolution was fought to put politics into government, right. not to take politics out of government. Yeah. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. uh, politics is the Republican system of government. That's what our founders bequeathed us, yeah. and, and I think it behooves us, if we have any respect for the founders, to, to honor what they gave us. and. Politics, democratic government is messy, it's slow, it's full of conflict. Uh, a lot of people get pretty damn cranky mm. a bit because they don't get what they want. But it's the system. It's You know, we are betraying the founders if we think it isn't good enough.
1: Well, that's right. Uh, princes are able to get things done, and liberty is messy, and it always has been. So that's a wonderful way to end. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And uh, I encourage everybody to go out and read the first Congress of James Madison George Washington, and a group of extraordinary men invented the government. Thank you very much, Fergus. Thanks, sir.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.